KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, for Black History Month, the 1619 Project is now a series on Hulu. Originally published by the New York Times three years ago, the new six-part docu-series, narrated by Hannah Nicole Jones, creator of the project, is running now. We'll talk about the 1619 Project with one of the contributors to the book, historian Martha Jones, later in the hour. And just for fun, we'll revisit an interview we recorded in 2012 with Oliver Sacks about his days as a young medical student in Los Angeles tripping in Topanga. Finally, we're still thinking about Victor Novasky, who died on January 23rd. He was editor or publisher of The Nation for 27 years, starting in 1978, and the author of several books, including one about his life in magazines, titled A Matter of Opinion. We'll listen to our conversation about that book, recorded in 2006. But first, it's time to talk about the crisis over the debt ceiling the Republicans' refusal to fund the debt they created, and their threat to force the United States of America into default unless Biden does what they want to cut social programs. But there's a solution to the debt crisis in the Constitution. That's what Eric Foner has found. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. Eric, welcome back. Yes, good to talk to you, John. Well, your guest essay for the New York Times op-ed page last week about the debt ceiling got almost a thousand comments. Some of the comments themselves got more than 50 replies. Uh, It was the number six most clicked on article in the Times for a while. So it seems you are onto something here, but where in the constitution is the solution to the crisis over the debt ceiling? Well, the solution is in a often overlooked uh, part of the Constitution, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, as you know, was added to the Constitution after the Civil War during Reconstruction. It's mostly known because, because of its first section, which creates citizenship for Black people, indeed for anybody born in the United States, and um, requires that the states uh, abide by the due process of law, equal protection of the law for all Americans, et cetera. The, the, but there is a lot more in the 14th Amendment. It was in a way meant to solve many of the issues that arose out of the Civil War. Uh, what would happen to people who had been traitors? Uh, one of the things the 14th Amendment says is that they're not allowed to hold office anymore if they took part in insurrection or rebellion, tries to finesse the question of black suffrage as it existed in 1866. But here, Section 4 begins by saying that the debt, the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. The validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. We need to know the original intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, and you wrote the book about 
them and the 14th Amendment. The book is called The Second Founding. So tell us who were the people who wrote and then who debated and then who ratified this provision about the validity of the public debt and what were they trying to accomplish here? Well, I'm glad you added that very last little clause. What were they trying to accomplish? Because I am not an originalist. I do not believe that we should be governed now by the dead hand of the past from 150 years ago. Moreover, that there is no important document that has one and only one original intent or original meaning. Uh, Nonetheless, it is a legitimate historical question to try to figure out what people were trying to accomplish at the time. And section four here, what they're trying to accomplish is to avoid really where we are now, the danger of repudiating the debt. You know, the federal government to pay for what it does, uh, issues bonds, it borrows money in effect, and uh, pays interest on those bonds and eventually pays the money back to the Uh, people who loaned them the money. If it doesn't do that, if it doesn't pay the interest and doesn't redeem the bonds, then it is in default. And this has never happened to the United States government. But uh, it it appears it would cause a great economic turmoil if that happened. So they're trying to avoid the possibility of the debt not being properly paid. It's in the Constitution that it must be paid. And, you know, my view is that that makes the whole issue over the debt ceiling unconstitutional. And let me just say, debt was a big issue after the Civil War for a very specific reason. Right. The debt issue was overshadowed to a large degree by the big issue of Reconstruction, which is what was going to be the status of the former slaves, who was going to control the South, uh, the aftermath of the Civil War. Yet there was also a big political debate about the results of the financial policy that the union had adopted in order to pay for the war. Uh, The Civil War cost an enormous amount of money. They borrowed an enormous amount of money. They printed a lot of paper money to help pay for things. And uh, there were those who said that there was too much of that has been done, and particularly Uh, a a debate about some of the bonds that were issued, whether the people who bought them should be paid back their money in paper money, greenbacks, which were deteriorating in value, or in gold. Most of the laws that established these bonds, the borrowing, said the people who buy this are going to be paid back in gold, but there were some that they left that out. It seems like it was more an omission than anything else, not intended But uh, the Democrats particularly insisted that the people who had loaned money to the government should be paid back in paper money. They bought the bonds with paper money, uh, the greenbacks, so they should be paid back. Giving them gold would be a big big windfall for banks, for rich people, uh, or even ordinary people who had bought these bonds. Aligned with that was the question of what would happen if ex-Confederates came back into the government? Or what would happen if the Democrats in the North won control of the government again, as they had before the Civil War? Would those groups honor the national debt, which had been uh, accumulated? Would they demand the uh, payment of the Confederate debt, people in the South who had loaned money to the Confederacy? So this provision of the fourth section of the 14th Amendment was then also Uh, meant to prevent the repudiation of any part of the federal debt 
uh, and to make sure that the Confederate debt was not repaid. That's no longer an issue, although there are plenty of Republicans now who really admire the Confederacy <laughs> and carry Confederate flags around, as was done on during the insurrection of January 6th. So uh, who knows? Maybe they will try to pay the Confederate debt. And while they're at it, why not get compensation for the loss of slaves? Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're going, you're jumping ahead of us here. But I'm jumping ahead. But actually, all those things are in Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, that the national debt cannot be questioned. The Confederate debt is kaput. Nobody is going to get that money back. And no money is going to be given to compensate people for the loss of their property and slaves. So the, the bottom line is this. If you don't include increase the debt limit, you are violating that portion of the Constitution. My view is that President Biden, who claims he's not going to negotiate over this, I hope that he sticks with that, has the constitutional right to enforce this and to say, look, uh, the Constitution bars repudiating the federal debt or not paying it. And I have to operate on that basis. If Congress refuses to help, we will just issue more bonds. We'll sell more bonds in order to get the money we need to pay for the government. And the Constitution authorizes us to do that. The Constitution famously is not self-enforcing. The provision says the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned, but it, then other parts of the Constitution say that Congress is empowered to implement the Constitution. So there seems to be uh, some opening here for Republicans to say, well, we're going to do our constitutional duty. And it would be a violation if they did that of this provision. Remember, early on in Section 1, it says that one of the powers of Congress, one of the roles of Congress is to pay the debts of the United States. They're it supposed to pay that. these it debts. Does say that. Remember, the debt limit is about money that has already been authorized. It's not that they're going out cap in hand to borrow more money at this minute. It's that they've already passed a budget which includes spending for all sorts of things. And in order to implement that, they are going to have to borrow the taxes come in, which help pay for it, etc. But they don't have enough to pay for the entire budget. So naturally, they have to issue bonds for treasury bills, which happens all the time. It's to pay for what they already voted to do. It seems kind of odd to vote for all sorts of good little programs and then say, oh, by the way, we're not actually going to pay for those things. That doesn't seem proper. I started reading the 930 comments on your piece in the New York Times. I can't say I've read all of them. A lot of them took up other parts of the 14th Amendment that you discussed sort of in passing. There was a lot of interest in Section 2, which calls for a reduction in the number of representatives allocated to states that deny the right of vote to any citizens. And people pointed out that, well, Georgia has been taking people off the rolls if they haven't voted in the last two or three elections, and then they show up at the polling place and they're not allowed to vote. Florida had a referendum that gave the right to vote back to felons who had served their sentences, but now the Georgia Republican legislature has, has created all sorts of obstacles to fulfilling that mandate. And various people commented on your piece 
aren't these equally significant violations of the 14th Amendment? And isn't it time to reduce the number of representatives allocated to Georgia and Florida? Oh, I have advocated that for a long time. In fact, I am the president of the American Association to enforce Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Now, it's not a mass movement. In fact, there's <laughs> only two members, myself and Professor Gabriel Chin, and law professor at the University of California, Davis. But we argue that exactly that states are now removing so many potential voters from the voting rolls that the penalty of the uh, 14th Amendment Section 2 ought to be implemented. It never has been implemented, even at the height of Jim Crow, when millions of black people were denied the right to vote. The Southern states lost no members of Congress, even though they certainly should have. The NAACP went to court and tried to get it enforced, but the court said, uh, we don't want to be bothered with this, and nothing happened. If some of our listeners want to join the Association for the Enforcement of Section 2... Now, the membership is full. <laughs> we don't want... We, we, this is an elite group. We do not want a mass membership. Texas is really the state that, that is most vulnerable there because you need to have a large number of congressmen so that if you disenfranchise, let's say, 10% of your possible voters, so if Texas has 20 congressmen, that means they'd lose two. But if you were going to take away 10% from Montana, you couldn't do that. They've only got one guy, you know? So yes, that's an unenforced part of the 14th Amendment, Section 3 basically says that anybody who took an oath to of allegiance to the Constitution and then took part in insurrection or rebellion uh, can no longer hold office, local office, Senate, Congress, and president. Any office, they should be barred. And there has been some discussion of enforcing this against President Trump or ex-President Trump. He, of course, did take an oath to uphold the Constitution and then did encourage insurrection. We know all that. He should be barred from future office uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In other words, Section 1 is the most important part of the 14th Amendment. It's not the only part. And it was they're all in there for a purpose, to try to make sure that the slave regime from before the Civil War cannot be reconstituted uh, after the Civil War, that the victory of the North be put into the Constitution with all its ramifications. It's still out there on the books, ready to be implemented. Eric Foner, he wrote about the answer to the debt ceiling crisis found in the 14th Amendment in an essay for the New York Times op-ed page. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The 1619 Project, published by the New York Times three years ago, first in the Sunday Magazine and then as a best-selling book, is now a TV series, a six-part documentary on Hulu that's running now. The docu-series is narrated by Hannah Nicole Jones, creator of the project, and produced by Oprah Winfrey. 
We talked about the 1619 Project with one of the contributors to the book, historian Martha Jones, in an interview in 2022. We want to talk about how the legacy of slavery has shaped American politics and society today. That's the subject of the 1619 Project. You may remember it began as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans arriving in America, in Virginia. The idea quickly became the focus of challenge and then of attack as Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas introduced a bill in Congress. He called it the Saving American History Act, which would prohibit federal funds from being made available to teach the 1619 Project curriculum in schools. And then President Donald Trump denounced the 1619 Project as, quote, toxic propaganda and appointed a commission to promote what he called patriotic education focused on the legacy of 1776. Now the 1619 Project has published a book expanding the original 10 essays to 19, and the new book also includes more poetry and fiction and some wonderful photography. The project was created by Nicole Hannah-Jones, an award-winning journalist and recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's also the lead editor of the new book, published this week, which is called The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. For more on that, we turn to one of the contributors to the new book, Martha Jones. She's an award-winning historian who writes about how Black Americans have shaped democracy in the United States. She's professor of history at Johns Hopkins, author of the books Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, and more recently, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. She's written for the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and other places. We reached her today in Baltimore. Martha Jones, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Well, if we think of the origins of the United States lying not in 1776, not with the Declaration of Independence and the Revolution, but rather in the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia 150 years before that, in 1619, what does that change in our understanding of American history? Part of how I understand the 1619 Project is precisely a grand thought experiment, um, in part contributed to by historians, but also including journalists and many creative writers, um, all of which explore what it means to recenter U.S. history around the experiences, the perspectives, and the profound troubles of people of African descent in North America. Well, the 1619 Project is not just a big book of essays. It's also a set of educational materials for schools put together not by the New York Times, uh, but by the Pulitzer Center. And the materials are intended, they insist, to supplement, not replace, the standard history and social studies uh, curriculums. Uh, thousands of teachers in all 50 states are now using the 1619 Project. This, was, of course, was the target of Tom Cotton's bill, which I'm happy to say died in Congress. But then 27 state legislatures controlled by Republicans have introduced similar legislation proposing to ban the teaching of what they call divisive concepts. What do you think about teaching what they call divisive concepts in high schools? 
You know, I um, have the the honor, um, not infrequently, to talk with both K through 12 educators and their students. And what I hear is not um, a fear or resistance. What I hear from young people in particular is, why have you kept this history from us for so long? And um, that is a hard and humbling question, I think, for those of us who are in the business of history. But it is one that I think um, poses a uh, an urgent challenge to us. From educators, what I hear is, why didn't I learn this in school? And here is a moment to remember that many of us received educations that bear the mark of American apartheid, that bear the mark of Jim Crow um, in our textbooks, in our curriculum, and more. And so here, I think, um, we have this opportunity to extend a kind of compassion to all of us, and I include myself among those who were just not educated um, in the ways that we recognize we want and need to have been in the 21st century. And so it is a tragedy to imagine that um, state censorship is going to keep these materials out of classrooms. But of course, the work of the Pulitzer Center um, and more um, is working to make sure that those materials continue to be accessible, even if it is not through the auspices of public school systems. Well, probably the part of the 1619 Project that's been debated the most among historians has been about 1776 and the American Revolution, the ways in which the fight for American independence from Britain was also a fight to preserve slavery for Black people. That's a shocking idea to a lot of people, but it's something that historians have been studying and debating for a while now. What do you think the debate tells us about where we are now when it comes to teaching, researching, and writing about the founding? I think there are two things to say about that. The first is that the 21st century is not the first time in which this country has debated um, the profound question of our origins. It's not the first time as a nation we've debated um, how to think about um, the fact and the legacies of slavery and anti-Black racism. So we are in the latest chapter, if you will, in a longer debate. And at the same time, that debate, the one we're in today, is unfolding in a political context in which history um, is being used as political fodder, um, which is to say, um, very quickly, we get at quite a distance from the archives, from the historiography, the kinds of things that you and I very much root our work in. And we understand that once again, history becomes a tool, it becomes an implement for um, political debate. And in this moment, I think it's a debate precisely over who should steer this nation's future, what sorts of ideas should animate it. And we see that as we tussle over whose history is the history. Of course, there isn't ever a well-settled answer to that sort of question at all. That's a political question, not a historian's question. Part of the debate over the 1619 Project has been about the place of slavery in the Constitution. The word slavery never appears in the Constitution. That took a lot of work by anti-slavery delegates, but slavery is there, nevertheless, in several places. And we're aware, right, that the 
drafters of that constitution are self-conscious in their um, uh, omission of the term slave or slavery. There are many euphemisms when we teach the constitution that it's necessary to unpack. Um, but of course, we recognize that fugitive slave um, provisions, um, the three-fifths clause, um, that there are aspects of this constitution that are admit how um, aware and how much consideration the, found, the framers are giving to the issue of slavery. Uh, yes, just to spell that out a bit, the Founding Fathers included a clause in the Constitution that slaves who escaped to free states, fugitives, had to be sent back to the South if captured in the North. This made slavery a national institution. The Founding Fathers also put into the Constitution a provision that the slave trade could continue for 20 more years they called it the importation of persons. Congress then banned the slave trade in 1807. And of course, the three-fifths clause, they also agreed that slaves could be counted for the purposes of apportionments of seats to the House of Representatives. At the same time, um, I'm a legal historian who has to remind my students that even a document as consequential as a constitution is only a text until the contests um, in lived experience animate it. And so when I teach the constitution, I teach it alongside uh, figures like Elizabeth Freeman, enslaved in Western Massachusetts in the revolutionary era, who will use the Massachusetts state constitution to not only challenge her own enslavement, but the institution of slavery in the state of Massachusetts. There is the history of the constitution um, when, in that example, an enslaved woman comes to a court and asks for an interpretation um, that transforms in her own life, but the future of slavery in the state of Massachusetts. That is um, the Constitution as we know it as a living document. Well, your work asks questions about race and racism in the Constitution. Tell us about that. One of the questions um, that I've tried to answer is, um, how have Black Americans figured before the Constitution when it comes to the question of citizenship? And one of the things um, good students of the, of the Constitution know is that it is almost silent about who, in fact, is a citizen of the United States. There are references to citizens, yes, in the document, but never is there a definition. And that lapse, right, that chasm really in the Constitution means that Black Americans, even those who have um, managed to free themselves from the bonds of enslavement, even those folks are faced with a dilemma because the Constitution is unclear about where they stand. You write about Black activists who fought for citizenship in antebellum America. What was their argument? There are a couple of arguments, um, and these are folks who are really inventing right, the notion of citizenship in real time. They read the text of the Constitution, and they discover, for example, that the president of the United States must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. And they say, I think reasonably, they argue, if the president is a natural-born citizen, there must be such a category. And 
why aren't we also natural born citizens? There's no color line in the Constitution, they importantly point out. At the same time, Black Americans are going to um, speak importantly about their labor, um, much of it uncompensated and unrequited um, in the early United States as another claim to citizenship another theory of what citizenship might be in the U.S., ultimately they fix on the idea of birthright, something familiar to us even as 21st century Americans. And they begin to promote this notion that birth in the United States connotes citizenship in the United States. And they will press for many decades on this idea um, until finally the 14th Amendment becomes part of the Constitution in 1868. Wow, we just we just we just went through a, a, a whole swath of time, but um, I hope the point is clear. Well, let's talk about the rest of the book. There's these key chapters on 1619 as the beginning, and 1776, and the Constitution of 1789. There's your work about how Black Americans won birthright citizenship rights after the Civil War and the 14th Amendment. What other chapters of the book did you think were especially notable or or significant or, or original? I think one of the chapters that might surprise readers in a welcome sense is that by historian Taya Miles, um, titled Dispossession. Here, um, Miles brings to the readers of the 1619 Project her long-standing intervention, which is one that it insists on how Native history and African-American history are profoundly intertwined. Um, And here she takes us through everything from the um, intertwined issues of land dispossession um, and the extension and the the, um, longevity of slavery and the reliance upon enslaved labor to develop and cultivate that land that Native people have been dispossessed from. But she also reminds us as Native Americans face dispossession, um, there are those among them who, under the moniker of civilizing take up the holding of people of African descent as slaves um, in early America. So these are chapters that remind us that our histories aren't silos. But Miles makes the point, of course, that until today, the question of land, of dispossession, of who is a citizen, not only of the United States, but of sovereign native nations um, are live questions and are unchallenged by the um, persistence of anti-Black racism. And so her chapter for me speaks to a lesser known chapter in the past, but also to really pertinent questions in our present. So now we have this new book by the 1619 Project. For historians, it's likely to lead to new challenges, new debates. Do you think that more conflict and strife around the central issues of American history is something to be regretted? Should we try to avoid that? Is a new consensus our goal here? It's not my goal. <laughs> and and I'm someone who strives in a way to recognize not only um, the ways in which debate is useful, productive, essential, I would argue, for producing better history. But as important, it opens our eyes to the important degree to which conflict is the story of American democracy. And when we, as the 1619 Project has done so powerfully, 
place, for example, Black Americans at the center of our narratives, it is possible to gloss American history as the history of um, consensus or the history of um, a Whiggish arc of progress. Um, And that, to me, is the essence of American democracy, which means, um, should we persist, Um, We will do so through the kind of contest, through the kind of strife, through the kind of disagreement that has always uh, characterized this project. And it will not be limited to the uh, place um, or the role of Black Americans, um, but there are many communities of Americans um, still to be fully woven into our understanding of the past and, frankly, our capacity um, as a country into the future. Martha Jones, she's one of the contributors to the 1619 Project, the book based on the project created by Nicole Hannah-Jones and the New York Times Magazine. Martha, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. We spoke with Martha Jones about the 1619 Project in 2022. The 1619 Project is now a six-part documentary series on Hulu. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We're still thinking about Victor Navasky, who died on January 23rd. He was editor or publisher of The Nation for 27 years, starting in 1978, and author of several books, including Naming Names, a book about the Hollywood blacklist that won the National Book Award in 1982. I first interviewed Victor It was about naming names when it was published for LA radio station KPFK. My goal in life at that point was to write for him and his magazine. And three years later, I became a contributing editor of The Nation. And eventually we launched this podcast. In 2005, Victor published the book, A Matter of Opinion, arguing that even in the age of the internet and Fox News, independent journals of opinion were vital to the health of democracy. We talked about a matter of opinion in May 2006. This book is about your life in magazines. Uh, When you became editor of The Nation in 1978, what was the circulation at that point? We claimed it was 22,000, but we were unaudited. And my suspicion is it was closer to 20. Closer to 20. And and what is the audited circulation of The Nation uh, this week, this month? Well, the last time I looked, it was 184,576. <laughs> so uh, I guess we have to call you a success in the magazine uh, business. How how did you do this? Well, it, I didn't do it, John. You know, I mean, Katrina edits it. Uh, we have great Alex Coburn and Katha Pollitt are great columnists. You are a frequent, contri- sometime contributor. Sometimes, sometimes. More frequent. No, it's an, a great team. But in the magazine business, it is true that survival is the ultimate test of success. And the nation, which was founded in 1865, is America's oldest weekly magazine, while publications like the Saturday Evening Post, Collier's Look, Life, with circulations in the millions, have gone under. This book, called A Matter of Opinion, it's about magazines. Would you call it a how-to book for people who want to start a magazine? 
Well, I'll tell you, John, you know, I showed the manuscript to my son who read all three pages, and he said, I get it, it's the how not to. <laughs> uh, but in fact, it started out to be a meditation on the roles of journals of opinion, and then when my publisher, Arthur Carter, sold me the magazine for money I didn't have after ma- making me the offer that I should have refused, I changed it from a, a third-person meditation to a first-person misadventure story. <laughs> and uh, it's partly uh, a memoir, a professional memoir, not a personal one, sort of, but it's also partly how to do it or how not to do it, if you will. And then partly it is, as you said at the outset, the case for independent journals of opinion in the face of this everything else that's happening, the conglomeratization, the Murdochization, the tabloidization, the Oprahification, the simplification, the bureaucratization, the concentration of journalism. And uh, these, these 18th century relics are the uh, number one counterforce, you know, showing what what it could be and should be. Well, uh, let, let me ask you about that argument. Thing, things, have, as you say, have changed a lot since you started at The Nation in 1978. At that point, there was no 24-hour cable news, much less the Internet. Uh, today, on the Internet, you know, a, a, a thousand flowers bloom. Everybody can publish their own blog, which is sort of like a journal of critical opinion. But But you still think we need the weekly journal of critical opinion, which is printed on paper and sent through the mail, which, as you concede, is very expensive and very slow. Uh, Why do you think we still need the nation, as well as the National Review, the Weekly Standard, the the right-wing weeklies, as well as the left? Well, I'll tell you why I think so in a minute. But, you know, when we started the nation and when I did a, a business plan for it, I didn't include the Internet in it because it didn't exist, or at least not in my uh, vision of it. And um, last year, we got 28,000 paying subscribers to the hard copy magazine who came to us by way of our free website. How many? So Say that 28,000. 28,000. twice as many as came the previous year. Now, when the people first started talking about uh, the blogosphere, they didn't call it that then, they, but when they first started talking about the new information highway, all of these other things, they predicted the end of books and particularly the end of magazines because you could make your own magazine out of these various uh, websites and articles that are up there. It's, it doesn't, it's not happening that way. And, uh, of course, the blogosphere is not fact-checked. And, uh, you know, one's tolerance for um, reading articles of a certain length is, at least in this culture, is limited. And that's one of the reasons that the pieces that work best on various websites are short pieces. And, and magazines can run short pieces and long ones. And they've been vetted by editors who not only are looking at the particular piece, but uh, are putting forward a menu of things that uh, you should read together. And there's a gestalt that arises from that publication. And it's a, you know, it's a form that has lasted for hundreds of years, and I suspect it'll be around long after we're gone. Victor, one of the things you uh, steadfastly refused to do in your work as publisher of The Nation was to turn it into a nonprofit, which would bring in a lot of money in the form of tax-deductible contributions. You've always insisted that the nation remain a for-profit enterprise. 
I wonder first, has the nation ever made a profit? Well, um, before I got there in 1978, we were told that there were three years when the nation uh, made a profit, and I kept looking for them, and I couldn't find them. Okay. <laughs> no one could agree on which three. The last three years, we have taken in more man- money than we spent. But for years, I would go around make a, making a speech, and I would claim that one of the reasons the nation has survived longer than any other weekly magazine is because it's a cause more than a business. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't run it like a business, but we can't say that next year, given the rising costs of paper and the increased postal rates and all of that, despite the fact that I have testified in the past at the Postal Rate Commission and will in the future on behalf of postal subsidies for uh, journals of ideas and opinion across the political board, uh, we can't say that we're going to continue to operate at a profit. We hope that we will continue to grow. This idea of a government postal subsidy for journals of opinion, is this an original idea of yours? Well, I'd like to think so, but uh, actually George Washington was in favor of free delivery (laughs) of newspapers, which then were the equivalent of journals of opinion. Ben Franklin used to send magazines free through the mail, and Tom Paine was all for it as well. We're talking here about magazines on the left, mainly, but I wonder if you think that magazines of critical opinion are as important to the right as as they are to the left. Well, you know, National Review, was uh, Bill Buckley's magazine, was started around 1956, and they put forward all of these ideas and nourished the ideas, and they also brought together different elements of the right. They called it the fusion phenomenon, but but actually using the glue of anti-communism, they put together the coalition that won Barry Goldwater, the Republican nomination, in 1964, and ultimately nourished these ideas, cockamamie as they were, that uh, Reagan tried to implement when he got elected president. So uh, magazines of the right and left have played extraordinary roles in the politics of this country. And when people say, well, their circulations are tiny, you know, they don't matter, or they preach to the choir, they misunderstand the roles of these things, that, that their circulations are tiny, but the quality of the people who read them and the strength of, of the ideas that, and the power of the ideas to move their constituencies is quite real. Do you think it's true that the nation is preaching to the choir? Well, if it were true, first of all, I would say there's nothing wrong with that because the choir or the converted, they don't have a chance to read everything. And just like you want a restaurant critic to tell you where to go, we live in a society of opinion trusteeship, and you need the arguments, the ideas, the facts and figures to buttress the the politics that you instinctively and intuitively adopt. But in fact, anyone who looks at the letters page of the nation would know that if it's the choir, it's the most disharmonious choir in the history of the world. There is more space, for example, between our columnists than there is between the Democrats and Republicans. It's just that we have a different kind of debate going on in our pages. There is more difference of opinion between, the, for example, the radical feminists and the uh, civil libertarians over issues like should pornography be for sale, the uh, arguments between the top-down, old-fashioned socialist planners and the bottom-up Greens and Luddites. There is a cavernous 
space there, and it's much greater than the difference between the two parties who have more in common than the Democratic and Republican parties than what separates them, important as what separates them is. Well, I, I want to return to this this question of the Internet and the bloggers. Of course, uh, some of our best friends are bloggers, and the Internet, as you point out, is, is full of opinion. It's a great democracy of opinion, millions of opinions. The title of your book is A Matter of Opinion. I, I wonder if you think we have too much opinion out there now and not enough people going out and digging up uh, facts. It is now fashionable to take the position which you have just articulated. One of the loudest exponents of this view is the president of ABC News Television, David Weston, who both says that what we need is less opinion and more objectivity, and that if you spend your time with opinions, you have less time developing the facts. You know, I think, first of all, what that does is it ignores, it it lumps together as opinion everything from Rush Limbaugh, to Bill O'Reilly, to great bloggers, to irresponsible bloggers, to surrealist bloggers, (laughs) and Maureen Dowd and Ann Coulter. It's a, um, a term that is too broad, so you have to define what you mean when you talk about opinion. To me, someone who had a very wise thing to say about this was, uh, the late historian Christopher Lash who said that what we have to do is see information not as the uh, precondition of debate or the clash of opinion, but as its byproduct. And you need these competing views in order to arrive at meaningful facts and, and in order to have a real understanding of what's important and to put things in context. And it's the old debate that went on Years ago, between uh, the elitist columnist, Walter Lippmann, who believed that the news was out there to be found, or information facts were out there to be found scientifically, and uh, John Dewey, who, who said, you can't do that. What you can do is ask the right questions. And sometimes there'll be facts that can be found, other times that they're contingent, other times they're, you've got to ask further questions, and you don't know until you have asked all the questions what the important ones are. Well, I'd like to close by asking you to tell the story of the voicemail you got from the 68-year-old widow in Abbeville, Louisiana. Here's what she said. I need to ask a favor of you. I'm stuck in Abbeville, Louisiana, and I want to move but I want to move somewhere where I can see a Democrat before I die. It occurs to me that you might be able to rummage up a place where people are actually subscribers to the nation, where I would have somebody to talk to. I don't want their names or anything. I just want a town where there are a few kindred souls. And then she added, and if you could call around noon, I'd be grateful. I'm about to cut the grass. <laughs> so what what do you make of, of this message and others like it? Well, I think... You know, I've long thought that for for a lot of people, if you ask them who they are, they identify themselves as nation subscribers, and that this is a community of folk who are pleased to be know that they're not alone and not isolated no matter where they live, uh, in their views, which are outside of not only the mainstream press, but the mainstream dialogue and so it's a it provides a sense of belonging and it's not it's not just a matter of therapy it's a two-way conversation that goes on and it happens through the letters pages it happens with 
events that the magazine throws around the country. It happens with correspondence that doesn't find its way in the letters pages. It happens over the Internet. It happens with nation discussion groups around the country. And uh, it's a growing community. Victor Navasky, we spoke with him about his book, A Matter of Opinion, in May 2006. Victor died on January 23rd. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to revisit our interview with Oliver Sacks about tripping in Topanga. He was a professor of neurology at the NYU School of Medicine who wrote widely about the brain. The New York Times called him the Poet Laureate of Medicine. He's best known as the author of the classic book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And his book, Awakenings, was made into a film and nominated for an Oscar, where he was played by Robin Williams. We spoke with him in 2012 about the book he published that year, titled Hallucinations. He was 79 years old at the time, and he died three years later. You write in, in your new book, Hallucinations, quote, we seek a more intense sense of the here and now, close quote and that drugs offer uh, a shortcut. Uh, this is what we call the news you can use segment of our broadcast. Uh, tell, us, tell us about these drugs. <laughs> I, mean, I was afraid you would get on to this. <laughs> that was the last chapter I wrote, and I, I wasn't sure whether it should be in the book or not. But um, I, think it, I think it probably should. One of the most fascinating parts of your book the, was, is the chapter that was uh, excerpted in, in The New Yorker where... You write about some of your own experiences uh, with w first starting with what you call your long virginity of your experience with hallucinogenic drugs. You were a medical student, and how did you manage to uh, stay away from hallucinogenic drugs for this long period? Um, I, I think I was um, uh, afraid or maybe not passionately interested, um, but when I became a neurology resident. I was 30 at the time and, 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 uh, and also part of the sort of beach culture in Venice and, and Santa Monica beach, uh, beaches. Um, every, everyone drugged and I thought, well, why not try? Uh, but but, uh, but I, I was also um, uh, full of curiosity because um, neurochemistry and had come of age then and there were there was all sorts of new ideas, all sorts of new ideas about neurotransmitters and the effects of L-dopa or other drugs on the brain. So, so I broke my long virginity first very gently with cannabis with some pot, and then I tried other things. I'm glad you brought up Los Angeles, Venice, Santa Monica. Of course, we're broadcasting from Los Angeles, and Los Angeles looms uh, large in the story you tell in Hallucinations. Yeah, let's start uh, with that first joint that you smoked. It was in Topanga Canyon, a very appropriate place yeah. to smoke your first joint. First of all, when, when was this, and, and how did it go? Um, it was in 63. 
Um, I started living in Santa Monica, then I moved out to Topanga Canyon. I had a little house there, um, and um, I lit it up and and took a deep inhalation and for some reason gazed at my hand, and my hand seemed to get larger and larger and at the same time more and more remote from me, so, so that finally it looked like a, a cosmic hand spread across the whole universe. And... Um, I I found that very very intriguing, and I was uh, torn between the the neurological concept of, of of macropsy or megalopsia when things look large, and a feeling that this was a, a sort of mystical experience of a primitive kind. Now you write that this first pot experience of yours in Topanga in 1963 was marked by quote a mixture of the neurological and the divine close quote. Of course, your expertise is in the neurological. How do you understand the the visual experience you were having? Um, size and distance are are normally coupled, um, and. Um, in a way, the image on my retina was the same, but, uh, but, but as it were, an improbable percept developed that the hand could be much larger and much further away, at the same time subtending the same, uh, the same angle on my, my eye. Um, but this sort of thing can happen in, with a fever or in various neurological conditions, or sometimes the opposite when things appear very small. But there must have been some some sort of stimulation of something mystical as well, because it 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 was a uh, an enchanting and, and awesome experience. And you didn't find it frightening at all. Uh, no, I didn't find it frightening. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Oliver Sacks, the professor of neurology at NYU. His new book is called Hallucinations, and the New York Times calls him the Poet Laureate of Medicine. Let's talk about your experiences with LSD. When and, when and how did you first come to take LSD? Well, I think it was probably a, a few months after I smoked a joint. There was a lot of LSD around. Uh, one of the early experiences I had with LSD, um, although perhaps recklessly, I'd mixed it with some other drugs as well and topped it off with some cannabis. I had um, been reading about the color indigo, which... Uh, um, and was puzzled by the fact that no two people seemed to be quite clear as to what indigo was. Um, and uh, Newton added an indigo to the spectrum because he thought the spectrum should have seven colors, as the musical scale should have, have seven notes. And anyhow, I got stoned on acid, and when I was really high, I said, I want to see indigo now. <laughs> And as if thrown by a paintbrush, a huge, trembling, pear-shaped drop of purest indigo appeared on the wall in front of me. Um, it seemed um, wonderfully luminous and sort of numinous at the same time, so much so that I thought, this is the color of heaven. 
this must be the colour which Giotto tried to get in his paintings but could never get. Mm -hmm. And maybe he couldn't get it because it doesn't exist on earth. And I leant towards it in a sort of rapture and it suddenly disappeared, uh, leaving me with an an immense sense of of loss. Um, I thought... Uh, I mean, I had a sense of bliss or rapture and, and I don't know, almost orgasm with, with seeing the indigo. Um, and um, I, for months afterwards, I, I kept turning over little stones and, and looking, looking for indigo. I went to a mineralogy museum and looked at azurite, which is often described as being indigo, but it was nothing like what I'd seen when stoned. I, I did see indigo again, curiously, and the second time I was not on any drugs, but I was at a concert and listening to some Monteverdi, and I was I was um, again thrown enraptured by the music and thrown into a sort of ecstasy. And then, in the interval, I went out. It was given in the Egyptology Gallery of the of a museum here in New York, and some of the lapis lazuli things were indigo, and I thought it really exists. But then I, after the concert, I went again, I'd come down, and it wasn't indigo, and I've never seen it since. We spoke with Oliver Sacks about tripping in Topanga and his book Hallucinations in 2012. He died in 2015. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.